Welcome to the new school. What we wanted to do was talk about the concept of authenticity and vulnerability in an industry that has typically been super buttoned up, super professional, and a little bit old school. Hello, and welcome to episode number 21 of the New School Video Podcast. If you're a new listener, my name is Candace Carlton, and I am the head of advisor education at Bicom Partners. In this episode, I'm joined by my lovely co-host and CEO of Bicom Partners, Meg Carpenter, and we had the opportunity to speak to Jacqueline Martinez, who is a close friend of mine. I actually used to share an office with her back in the days of United Capital. She is now a partner at Alaris Acquisitions, and she's on to tell us about all the things that are going on in the M&A market. Why is funding so hot right now? How's the landscape changed and why? How they're helping advisors find the right fit? And also, what is the new school acquisition deal flow. For anyone who's been wanting a really human understanding of everything that's going on, an expert insights, Jacqueline, let me tell you, is the person to give it to us. She was previously head of acquisitions and did all the deals at United Capital that was acquired by Goldman Sachs. So we're really, really excited to have her on. I think you're going to dig it. So this is a really exciting episode because when this is being released, the M&A market is hot right now. And we just so happen to know a deal maker in the space who couldn't be more new school if she tried. Also, one of my ex-office mates, I was talking, Jacqueline, just before that I would make videos, you'd make deals, and we'd talk fashion in between. <laughs> Welcome to the New School Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Megan Candice. I'm really happy to be here. So Jacqueline, you just recently exited Goldman Sachs. You were part of United Capital and making the deals on the acquisition team there. And you just joined uh, Alaris Acquisitions, where you are a managing partner. Tell us, first of all, what does Alaris Acquisitions mean and what are you seeing on the M&A market right now? Why is it so hot? Great questions. So Alaris Acquisitions, that means wingman. So we are primarily um, representing buyers in the space. We have a really diverse group of clients, about 20 right now. And they all have different profiles of what they're looking for. And we get to know them really well. Um, a lot of them don't have an internal M&A team. So we're really that outsourced function for them. And then all of our outbound marketing efforts go towards sourcing potential um, sellers that they could um, have join their team. And so we spend the first four to six weeks after we have a, you know, some feedback from one of the potential sellers and see what kind of partner they want to have, what type of um, world they want to have post-close. And then um, once we get to know them really, really well, then we would make the introduction and help them get to a deal with one of our clients. So what's going on in the market right now? Why is everyone trying to sell and buy? 
There is like just as much interest on the sell side as the buy side. It's really incredible, you know, and I think um, on the seller side, they're looking to take the advice that they give their clients all the time, you know, diversify their risk and take advantage of all time highs in the market and, you know, do a partial liquidity event and really set the teams up for that next chapter of growth and get more resources and more access to you know, capital to grow their business or part of, you know, organic growth programs, different things like that. Um, and then on the buyer side, you know, rates are low. And I think a lot of the private equity firms, they're realizing that there's, um, you know, just really stable cash flows in these businesses. And they're kind of waking up to the fact that these are great businesses to invest in. It's a lot of entrepreneurs in the space that want to grow. It's exciting. They care about their clients and their people and, you know, just really great businesses to to be a part of. So I think, you know, it's awesome that it's kind of all coming together right now. And with advisor demographics where they are, we, you know, I think it'll be a long term good decision that I left my cushy Goldman job and, um, you know, just help firms for many years to come to add to their teams. There's a lot that I want to dive into as it relates to your transition, because I'm anytime I have the opportunity to meet a fellow female business owner and entrepreneur, I'm just like so interested in learning about it. So I want to get to that. Um, but I also just wanted to sort of run back to like why it's so hot right now. I think part of it has to do with the fact just of the maturity of our industry, right? So if you think that the pioneers of the independent registered investment advisory movement we're starting their firms like maybe in the 80s more in the 90s i mean we're reaching like 30 40 years of maturity of some of these businesses and so it just seems natural do you think that that sort of industry life cycle process has as much to do with it as um, everything else you just mentioned and then also like is that sustainable from a deal flow perspective I agree with that. I think that's spot on. And I think that I think that we will see it continue because a lot of the the next gen advisors and their and their businesses are not going to be, um, you know, in general, it's you know, there's always exceptions. But a lot of times these folks, you know, aren't willing to take those risks that the founders originally did. You know, they have more of that employee mindset. Otherwise, they would have started their own firm already. And um you know, and so it really gives an opportunity for the succession planning of the business, but then allows for the next gen to get access to all of the, you know, new great technology and, you know, just different ways to communicate with clients that are more forward thinking around marketing and so on. Um, so it's really nice, um, you know, segue to what the new world will look like. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in our position here, we're sort of at the front or we have a front row seat to some of these deals that happen. And we have learned and what we've been most excited about this year, last year, and we predicted, but it's exciting to sort of see it play out is that how these businesses, these sellers, how they market actually impacts valuation because from a buyer's perspective, you want to make sure that you're buying a sustainable business that has the ability to sort of keep the forward momentum going. And if you have a founder that's really just sort of built the business on his back based on community relationships and, and, you know, personal network, that's hard to replicate. And so what we see from a marketing perspective is firms coming to us and saying, okay, how can I build this engine? Because I know that it's really important from a valuation perspective. Um, are you seeing, 
seeing that? And if so, how much impact does having a sort of like sustainable, repeatable marketing engine have on the valuation of a firm? It really, really matters. And I, um, I would say, you know, the firms that are trading for the higher multiples and just more attractive terms overall, it's when they're um, organic growth rate. So, you know, excluding the market, but new assets when that's, you know, at least 8% growth per year, really excluding the market and, you know, just what are they bringing in of new clients or additions from their existing clients when that is able to be like in the low double double digits, that's when multiples will be higher because, you know, it is a cash flow valuation for the most part, you know, some multiple of EBITDA, but, um, you know, the firms, they aren't making their money if, you know, if just that comes over, you know, there really needs to be a strong likelihood that what had been working for a firm in the past, that that will continue and that the firm that is acquiring them, that they'll be able to really double down on those efforts with what they bring to the table too. Um, and that that's how firms can justify these, these high multiples. So everything, you know, I mean, just such unique things that are going on with a lot of our, our buyer clients right now that um, like, you know, just are really incredible and really do drive results. And, um, and firms can point to the return on the investment of, um, you know, these various things that they're running. I love how much uh, digital marketing, because I think when you're talking about growth too, you're talking about repeatable growth, right? So being able to like look at it and not just say referrals, but see some kind of like system and marketing blueprint that they're actually running, driving to commercial results. So, you know, I feel like I remember sharing an office with you and then I was like down the corridor from you. But in my experience of, you know, working with you, you're always negotiating these really high stakes, multi-billion dollar deals where people are trying to find the right partner in terms of business for their life's work. When you think about all the work that you do with advisors and helping them match up to a buyer, in your experience, what is, who has the highest degree of success in terms of being happy with their decision once they sell? I think the one, the ones that have the, and I think back to like the United Capital days, you know, we spent so much time with um, having various um, leaders of the different departments spend time with a given candidate and really talk through what is life like on the other side? You know, um, am I really solving for the things that I set out to solve? And for sellers being you know, really honest with themselves about what they want. You know, not everyone wants to really grow a lot. Maybe, maybe succession planning is more of a near-term thing or, you know, all the reasons can be different. But I think when the sellers are honest about what they're trying to solve for, you know, um, and buyers really, you know, open the kimono, as they say, and let everyone, you know, understand all the different departments, how everything's going to work, um, to really limit the surprises later, you know? So like the combination of a lot of transparency and on the seller side, like stop looking for the boogeyman, you know? Everyone wants to have a great partnership on the other side. 
as scared as you are to make the wrong decision, firms don't want to invest in you and have that blow up and, you know, have to unwind it later. It's very messy. It's much easier to take the time, go slow, get to know each other, um, see if it's really a fit. And then, and then, you know, from there, when you've built that trust, things will inevitably come up that you disagree on, you know, or something, you know, you thought would work one way, doesn't, you know, but you know, it's all coming, it's not coming from a, you know, disingenuous place. It's just, you know, something that you'll work out together. So really building that strong foundation um, goes, you know, in the long run will be the best. And I don't hear you saying anything about economics there, but like, that's really what people lead with. But what I hear is it's more than that. Yeah. I mean, I think the economics, any active buyer in the space, you know, or, or if they're themselves aren't active, but maybe they've hired an Alaris or, you know, similar firm, they're going to keep valuation market for, um, for a given opportunity, you know? So I think for the most part, um, you know, there will be some variability, but mostly the valuations will will be reflective of the opportunity and will be within a, you know, 10% range usually when we're doing a more competitive process. Um, and so it's really just, you know, if you assume that's basically equal, then it really, you know, keeping the focus on finding the right cultural fit, we find that's, the best way to spend a lot of time. Do you find that the buyers and sellers that you're working with are really comfortable talking about culture? And do they know how to represent their culture and verbalize it in a way that's meaningful? Because I feel like in some of the conversations that I've been a part of, it feels like there's a lot of bullshit. Yeah, you know, it feels like there's a lot of posturing and or I'm just going to tell you what you want to hear so that I can get the next phone call with you. I'm going to tell you what you want to hear so that I can get you to share, sign that NDA and like share your numbers with me. And so how do you as an advisor like help your clients, but also the sellers that, you know, your clients are looking at because you you want it to be a good fit? Like, how do you help people cut through the crap? (laughs) Right. You know, it's so funny you say that because. In the first 10 minutes of any call, prospective client that we're going to bring on as a buyer, prospective seller, everyone talks about cultural fit. You know, it's like this buzzword that can mean so many things to different people. Yeah. You know? And um, and so I would say you don't always have to like you know, the person that you're bringing on as an advisor to your team, that's not critical, you know, that you want to spend time with them outside of work and, you know, go on trips together. That's not necessary. But what is necessary is to distill the basic alignment points of a partnership and what cultural fit really means to you. And that's what we spend time with in our our client onboarding for the buyer side is to go through and say, you know, what are your non-negotiables? You have an investment management platform. How much do you care that they fully move over to your um, way of doing things on that front? You know, are you okay with the migration path? Do you not really care at all? You know, and no wrong answer, right? But just being really direct about what that is. If you really only want firms that are fully willing to hand over the keys and, you know, just offload that to you, then we need to tell them that you know, early on in the process so that there's no confusion later on, you know, and and going down all the steps. Is it really important to you that you keep your brand name? 
Is it really important to you? Um, you know, fill in the blank, but like, what are those non-negotiable things? And then we're doing the same thing with our um, candidates that we're bringing through as well. So we have a series, a very like orchestrated process that we require our clients to follow um, because we know that it works. We know that it flushes out um, all of those key things that are going to be important for our buyers and, and, and it distills those points of alignment so that, um, you know, by the time we're matching up and being that, you know, the wingman there, by the time we're matching folks up, we already know that they're aligned on those basic things and they can go from there and, you know, and kind of fill in the blanks. Um, but that's, yeah, really defining what cultural fit means is, is paramount. Mm-hmm. I would love for you to share. I know you and I have talked about this over the years, but there's two points to this. And that is you have been a female negotiating multi-billion dollar deals in really high stakes conversations. That's really male dominated. And you seem to still, in my experience, maintain your presence. I've been in meetings where stuff was going crazy and you were just so Zen and centered and you maintain a high degree of femininity. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you do that, what your experience is of that. And then also like how you view negotiation. Cause I really think that you have such a new school lens around it. Thank you. That's very nice. (laughs) I, you know, it's funny and I have a meeting coming up and I was, I was reflecting with uh, one of um, the coordinators on our team that it's my first meeting where it's a, the head of the buyer company is a female. I'll be there. And the seller candidate um, is also a female. And so I've never had that happen. And, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, But anyways, I, um, let's see. I, I've played around a lot with how to um, to show up and, you know, be someone in the room that is, you know, um, adding value to a conversation, um, you know, but in, in a way that feels good to me. And I've, you know, been mentored by lots of women over the years and especially early in my career, kind of, you know, the older generation sometimes, and they it can be a, you know, come across like more aggressive than would feel authentic to me. And I, and I've played around with that and I've tried it, you know, and I've done it and I haven't felt great after. And so I've, you know, I've decided that isn't really for me for the most part for how I carry myself in most meetings. But, um, but at times when, when it is important or I feel like someone is, you know, not being, um, you know, honest or needs to be reminded of maybe a past conversation that happened, um, you know, and it's starting to get emotional. I, I do really try to, you know, just take a deep breath and not add to that emotional intensity and just be the more of the calm voice in the room that can say, okay, here's the situation. This is, you know, give some suggestions for how we can get through it and really help folks get to a place that, everyone feels good about and, um, you know, and, and just be like that calm sounding board in, um, in the room. And sometimes that's what's needed, you know, to take people back to what we're here, what we're here for, what are we trying to achieve? And, you know, and, and just take a step back. Um, that's worked well for me. And I, I align with what you said about 
you just have to find what's comfortable for you. You know, if it's not comfortable for you to show up and be that really sort of aggressive voice in the room, it's not going to work. So just because somebody told you that oh, you need to be more aggressive, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to get you the outcomes that you want. Mm-hmm. And I just, I sort of had a moment of high empathy because I had a lot of people early in my career tell me not to be so kind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just so kind. And you just need to be more of a shark. You know, you just need to be more dominant. Don't care so much about other people's feelings. And I tried that on, you know, yeah. I tried it on and at the end of the day, it didn't make me feel comfortable. And so now it's like, well, I'm really proud of my success. We've been quite successful with kindness and also don't mistake my kindness for weakness. But I had to become like really comfortable sitting in that and knowing that it no longer bothers me when someone says, oh, she's just so nice. You know, then I'm like, I am. I love that about myself and it doesn't mean that I'm weak and it doesn't mean that I'm my track record has been anything further than what I love about the success of this business. So I feel like that's like a key takeaway. And I love hearing you say that too, Jacqueline. It's just like, if, if you try it on and it doesn't fit, don't wear it again. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. What can we learn from you about negotiation? Like how do you feel like you succeed in negotiations or how can your buyers succeed in negotiations? Like, is there any, what was that? Um, there was a master class with the FBI master negotiator. I'm blanking on his name right now. But I watched I, it. Yeah. I, I took that class because I was like, I think there's a lot that I could learn here. So like, do you have any key points for those of us who feel like we could probably improve our negotiation skills? Yeah, I feel like I'm not so good at negotiating. Negotiating feels very adversarial and pushing my way through, but I've had lots of coaching from you, Jacqueline. So can you like share some of that of like how you view it? Um, I would say, I would say for me, and I'm, you know, more of a perfectionist type, you know, so for me, it's, it's preparation, it's going into it, you know, um, sometimes negotiations can go on for a lot of time, right, especially like in deals that we're doing. And so I keep a log of all the gives on each side, you know, just to be able to go back and reflect on you know, I know we're focused on this piece here, but let's not forget that, you know, all of these things are not our standard thing that we, we offered to you because of, you know, the long-term relationship, whatever the reasons are, but just kind of remembering the whole picture, because it's really easy to get caught up on what the current um, battle is, you know? Um, So for me, yeah, preparation. And then I would also say, being comfortable in the silence, you know, sometimes I'll have to say something that, you know, I know that the other party is not going to like, um, you know, I know that, you know, they're going to have their feelings about it and it's easy to say something. And then when they don't respond right away, because you kind of shock them to just keep talking and talking and talking, but really just stopping and letting it, letting the message sink in, you know, and not like an emotional delivery, just saying, you know, you know, just the facts, keep trying to keep it to the facts as much as much as possible. Um, That's really worked for me, you know? Um, Yeah. I also think you once said to me, and I thought this was so good. You said, I sent you an email about something. You said, let me think about this. And then you sent me a thoughtful email back. And then I called you and you said, make it, make the person that you're asking for something with feel good about saying yes. Right. Yeah. Because no one, no one wants to feel 
taken advantage of, you know, and that they're, you know, um, giving too much or, or not enough, not enough, you know, I think overall, like when I was saying earlier about the, the boogeyman, you know, most people are good people that want, want everyone to feel great about the deal. And, and those are the types of partners that you want to be with anyway, you know, if someone really gets excited about, you know, pulling one over on the other person or having, you know, that's, that's going to shine through in the, in especially processes like these M&A deals, they go on for so long, true colors all come out at some point. And, you know, and for the most part, people are good and they want to figure out good things, but these are, it's an emotional um, roller coaster, right? And so having someone by your side um, through the process that can help, you know, be a sounding board when, when you want to ask for something that isn't standard or to advocate for you, um, you know, and something that you want. I think that, you know, having, just having someone there to talk it through behind the scenes is always really helpful. Now, I want to spend a few minutes talking about your decision to take the leap to become an entrepreneur because super cool. And like you said, you had a really awesome cushy job at Goldman Sachs. A lot of people spend a lot of time trying to get jobs at places like that, yeah. you know, or you have the business card that says Goldman Sachs, like that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, so you made the decision to leave that job and to join Alaris. And I would love to just hear from you, like, what did that feel like? Like, was there any hesitation? Was there any fear? How did you overcome that? And, you know, I think it's important for people who are listening know, because many of them are entrepreneurs. It's not like a, a leap in the sense of like, you think about like leaping over a puddle. It's like leaping off a cliff. You know, It's <laughs> yeah. so different than having a salary that's guaranteed and not having to worry about payroll and covering expenses and what happens when there's, there's the variables are sort of endless. And so, what was that thought process like for you? It was it was not overnight. It luckily I had a maternity leave to really think it through and make sure it was the right decision for me. Um, you know, being part of Goldman was was so incredible. You know, um, I was honored to be able to carry on after um, United Capital was acquired by them, and I think it was a great outcome for our business, for our advisors, you know, just so much opportunity. Um, and I um, stayed on to kind of stabilize our program and get it set up in the new world and everything. And we got a few deals done. Um, but I was really craving that pace that we had in our United Capital days. And just, you know, we were a bigger company, but it was more of that entrepreneurial spirit where, you um, and I, I was just really craving that, you know, there, I mean, there's so many incredible people that I met at Goldman that will stay friends of mine. And I learned a lot from, but ultimately I love the pace of the deal world. And there's just so much opportunity right now. And, you know, I really toyed with maybe working for another larger acquirer and kind of replicating that. Um, but I thought it would be fun to, you know, just be able to be a champion of the deal and really be agnostic as to where a firm, who a firm partners with, you know, and with our, um, at Alaris, our diverse set of clients, there really is someone for everyone, you know, and rather than, you know, sometimes feeling like we have to shoehorn a deal in, you know, to make it work, to hit certain numbers or something like that. Um, 
able to just be that objective party in the process to help firms, you know, find their best fit, take that time to figure out, you know, what cultural fit means for them and, and making sure that they're making, you know, the right match. And, and so when Alan Darby, um, who previously he had been a, um, a, a sourcer for United Capital for many, many years. Um, he probably brought, I think, close to 30 or 35 deals to United Capital in our tenure. Um, so I've worked with him on almost all of those deals. So we have, you know, a long relationship and really complementary skill sets. We, you know, could not be more different, but I think that we, um, you know, we each have our lane that we really shine in and we know when to defer to the other person. And, um, you know, when he was looking for um, a partner to come on and, you know, and kind of fill some of those gaps in the in the leadership stack, I thought, wow, this sounds really perfect for me. And I think I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready for it, you know. Um, and so it's only been three months now at this point that I've been working with him in this capacity. But um you know, it's, it's exciting. And like you're saying, there's so many decisions that I never had to worry about in my United Capital and certainly not at Goldman days, but, um, but it's been a lot of fun and it's just, it's really rewarding to, um, to work with firms. You know, there's, it's really an underserved market, the firms that are below a billion, um, that want to make a move that want to acquire, that want to be acquired. You know, there's not a lot of firms that will really take that time to um, to handhold through the process. And that's really where we specialize. And um, so I just, you know, feel great about it every day, all the work that we're doing. I think I'm really excited to watch the future of everything that you do and expand on. So I know, Jacqueline, what, and I know I previewed this question to you because you wanted to be thoughtful, but we ask all of our guests, what does the new school mean to you? And specifically in the deal flow, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm a little biased, but I think that um, the way that we're approaching the process really is the new school. You know, traditionally, advisors, if they want to sell their business, they have a few ways to do it. They can go it alone. They can call up you know, a firm that they're looking, that they've admired over the years and, and work with them to join it. Um, and and they'll get through the process and they'll get to evaluation and, you know, they will hope that it's a market in fair valuation, but how, how will you possibly know? You know, the second way to go is, you know, to hire someone to represent them as a seller. Um, which is better. It's better, but it's more expensive, you know? So we've really taken that process and, and I would say too, on the second option, when, um, when you're being represented and shopping it to multiple parties, it is all about the economics. You know, you're not really having those detailed conversations about cultural fit until you've already basically picked them based on the math. And so we've taken that process and we've said, we don't like that. You know, we, we, we think that the math will work out and um, and it's more about focusing on all the other things that go along with the partnership. And so, you know, when we, when we switched our marketing from, you know, only calling on behalf of United Capital to now calling on behalf of 20 clients, our call volume of, you know, feedback and wanting to set up calls has tripled because the message is really resonating with firms. You know, they want to feel like 
they have an objective party in the process. And that's what we're able to bring. You know, we we take that time to, you know, like I was saying, all, you know, all the different alignment points that are important, we take the time to really dissect those and make sure that when by the time we're introducing a firm to one of our clients, we've gotten through the math, but more importantly, we know why they would be a good fit and they're able to just hit the ground running with that part of the partnership, which is where we think the focus should be anyway for long-term success. So I think I'd asked you this, but you were like, I, your number one advice, a number one piece of advice for an advisory firm looking to sell is hire someone to represent you. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, but it, it, it is nice to have, it is nice to have someone. And with our model, our buyers pay the fee. So there's really, you know, like engaging with Alaris is, is kind of the best of both worlds where you, you have someone to hold your hand and talk to, but like our buyers pay our fees for the most part. And I would also say too, is, um, you know, is just to um, take the time to really, um, be honest with yourself and what and what you're looking for and what's going to be best for your team and your clients, you know, and the right options will will surface out of that that exercise. Jacqueline, so fabulous. Thank you for coming on to the New School podcast. Where can people find you? Um, you can find me at alarisacquisitions.com or Jacqueline at alarisacquisitions.com. And people can just send you an email. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. See you soon.